We are most of the way through a series on the biblical theology of possessions. We're looking at poverty and wealth and all that God has to say from Genesis to the end, well, not all that God has to say. We're piecing through, trying to understand what what scripture has to say about God the creator and provider, how all things belong to him, how God has a unique passion and concern for the poor, how all that we have is a gift from God and therefore we have a calling with all that God gives us. The hope of this series, we're now seven weeks in, this is or six weeks in, seven weeks in, was that you've actually been thinking about this stuff. I know I have. As I've been reading scripture, listening to the sermons, listening to Matt Hemsley's sermon last week, it's, it's supposed to have an effect. You hear from God's word and if our spirit is sensitive to it, it's God, what do you want to say to me through these words? and maybe even move us, change us, our perspective on our own wealth and what God is calling us to. Something that I mentioned a few weeks back is that Jesus taught more on greed and money than on anger or sex or hell or prayer or faith. So clearly he thought there was an issue there or at least that there is a correlation between our approach to money and our relationship to God. And since we, in the 21st century West, are among the global and historical wealthiest people ever, we should probably assume, we should probably assume that money, materialism, greed, at least could be a problem for some of us. So this morning, we look at Luke 18 and 19 the second half of looking at the Gospels and what Jesus had to say. This is right before Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And when the Gospel writer Luke is laying out his Gospel, he lays it out so that the climactic events are happening towards the end. These are the final events, the final stories, Luke 18 and 19, before Jesus enters Jerusalem to be crucified. So in a sense, what's happening in Luke 18 and 19 is heightened. We should underline it and say what is happening here is sort of the the culmination of his experience and we're supposed to see what's happening. And we get in verse 18 of Luke 18 a ruler who comes to Jesus and says what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now if a religious guy, somebody in this church came to me and said this, what would I say? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And if I knew that the guy was pretty faithful, you know, not a lot of vices in his life, pretty nice guy, showed up at church every week, I would assume he has a guilty conscience. And he just needs to be reminded about the gospel. Right? It's by grace you're saved. Why are you worrying? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is by grace we are saved, not by works. Don't worry, bro. You're going to be okay. You believe It's all good. There is a sense in which that is a right answer for some people. But it's not what Jesus says. What does Jesus say? He says, one thing you lack. One thing you lack, my friend. One thing you lack. Give me ten Hail Marys and an Our Father and you'll be okay. One thing you lack, your devotional life, you need to have a quiet time every morning. One thing you lack, 
have you given 10% to the church? No, he pushes it a step further, doesn't he? One thing you lack, sell all, distribute it to the poor, and come and follow me. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And then he pushes on beyond that as the man walks away sad because Jesus is identifying the problem that wealth has in our lives and in our faith. In verse 25 and 26, he says, it is easier for, the camel, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, to which the disciples who were sitting there and watched this whole thing happen say, who then can be saved? Now, in a sense, that's a strange thing for them to say. Why would they say, who then can be saved? The reason is because they had economic and spiritual assumptions that were built into their first century Jewish worldview. The first century Jewish mindset built out of the Old Testament was that covenant faithfulness resulted in God's blessing. So if you obeyed God, God would bless you. In the Old Testament, there was more explicit uh, commands that follow God's ways, do what God tells you to do, and he will bring rains on your land. Your lands will be prosperous. You will be prosperous. Faithfulness will equal God's blessing and financial prosperity. So in the first century Jewish worldview, if a man was rich and hadn't gotten rich by stealing from others, the assumption was he was blessed. God was with him because he was faithful. If he can't get in, who can? The interesting thing is if we jump to our modern world, especially to America, to the West, our capitalist and merit-based economy applies the same equation, except that it replaces obedience to God, which results in blessing. It replaces it with hard work, talent and ability, achievement and success. If you work really hard, you will get paid. If you're really good at what you do, you will be successful. Success is measured in economic terms, and you will make more and more money. And the result is that we see money as something that we earn, something we deserve for our hard work, our ability, our achievements. And so we see all of our money as something we have a claim on. We have ownership and rights. I've earned it, it's mine. When Jesus says, it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, he's identifying the heart of an issue that I think is true for all of us and in all ages. And it's this, the richer you become, the less you need God. I'm not dependent on God for my food or my health or my joy and pleasure because with a swipe of the card, with a movement of the check, I can get what I need. I control the environment in my house. I bring in entertainment from all over the world. I can fly anywhere. The richer you are, the less you need God, and the more you become your own God. And like the frog in the kettle, this is where we all live. 
The water's gotten warmer and we don't notice it. The rich man says, what must I do? What must I do? And in verse 20, Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mother and father. To which the man says, all these I've kept since my youth. Now that's, that's you know, some bravado there, right? He's standing in the front of a crowd, crowd of people in his hometown. I've kept all these from my youth. And there's no sense that people start laughing. He probably actually had. And Jesus then says, of course, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and come and follow me. Now, what's interesting is Jesus identifies a certain portion of the commandments. He's talking about the Ten Commandments, right? But he only identifies commandments five through nine, what theologians and scholars call the horizontal relational commandments. Honor your father and your mother. Do not murder other people. Do not have sex with people that you're not married to. Do not steal or bear false witness against your friend. The man's like, I've done all these. I'm good with all my people. Jesus is aware of that. He's a faithful Jew who believes in Yahweh and tries to obey the commandments. But Jesus also knows this about the man, which is also true about most of us, is that most of us break the first and second commandment, no other gods, no idols. We break the first couple commandments not by atheism, I don't believe in God at all, nor even for most of us by following the deities of other religions. Now I'm going to worship Allah or Vishnu. But rather, as with this man, most of us break the first two commandments by loving and trusting something in our life or someone more than God. And for most of us, or any of us who have some level of money, money is one of our functional saviors, our false gods. Randy Alcorn, in his book on money, wrote, there is a powerful relationship between our true spiritual condition and our attitude and actions concerning money and possessions. Money has a powerful psychological effect on us, and it's reinforced socially. We actually build up tolerance to having more money. Like any addiction, if you start in on marijuana and then you move on to the other things, and eventually you're doing heroin, eventually you need more and more and more. You can't just have one hit, you need a constant hit, you need to be high all the time. When you open your mind to pornography, it isn't just one image, it becomes deeper and darker and worse and the need for more. Because you build up tolerance. What used to give you the rush no longer does. It's the same thing with money. What used to give us the rush or satisfy us no longer does. There may have been a time in your life when you survived on ramen noodles and now you're not sure how you can get by without quinoa. You're like, I, we're out of quinoa. How are we going to have dinner tonight? <laughs> going to Applebee's once a month used to be a big night out. 
Now you're checking the Washingtonian top 100 and seeing if you can tick those off. Best restaurants, have we hit them all this year? A great vacation at one point was going camping in the Shenandoah Valley. Now it's which countries in Europe do we need to hit? Maybe at one point you decide to start splurging in your life. I'm going to buy a pound of coffee each week from Starbucks. Grind it and make fresh, great coffee. $14 a week. And then you moved on to the $5 latte, and you're like, I don't know how I can get by without two of those a day. We build up tolerance, and what happens is what used to be a luxury becomes a necessity. Over the course of time, luxuries become necessities because we build up a tolerance to the money that we've had or earned. And this is reinforced socially. It's reinforced by the circles we run in. At one point, you might have lived in this sort of an apartment, and then you moved on to a better, to a nicer home, to your ideal home. And it changed who you spend time with. Even by living in Fairfax County, it necessarily changes who you spend time with. And who you spend time with creates a set of norms. These are the things that people in my social circles do. This is where they vacation. This is the type of entertainment they go to. These are the kinds of cars they drive. And so when you have them, you're no different. I'm no different. We're all the same. We're constantly comparing ourselves, but we only compare ourselves to those who are nearest to us. We don't compare ourselves to people in Fluvanna County, in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, in far western West Virginia. We compare ourselves to people on our street. And as a result, our assumptions, our norms, are completely changed. We are always comparing, but our standards are always trying to match up to those closest to us. The question I want us to ask is, is money an idol for you? And the question beneath that, to answer that question, which it may not be for you, okay, it may not be, but let's just assume for at least some of you it is, as it is for me. The question is this, what do you spend money on easily, effortlessly, and with pleasure? Do you spend money on stuff, like every time new technology comes out, you have to get the new and latest thing? Or you're like, no, that's dumb. I spend money on my house, my home, my furniture, my new kitchen. I, I spend money on my home for my family and my friends. Do you spend money easily on new clothes, on beauty? Or are you the kind of person who rejects all that sort of materialistic stuff? You spend it on experiences. You'll easily spend money on restaurants, but not on clothes. Or on vacations, not new technology. Tickets, but not your home. You will spend most easily on what is most important to you. You'll spend most easily on what you value most, on the thing you must have. And in that sense, as multiple people have pointed out that I've been reading, money is a surface idol in our lives. A surface idol that reveals deeper sources of trust and worship. So take, for example, some of us in here are spenders. Our natural tendency is to spend on things. Why might you spend? Why might you be lavish? Why might you kind of throw your money freely? 
It's because there's something that you must have, some primary motivation beneath the money, something you value that you think money can give you. So as an example, if you're primarily motivated by comfort and pleasure, you will easily spend money on, say, like food and wine, or on high thread count sheets, or leather furniture, or the, the car, or the spa. You'll spend money on things where pleasure and comfort are there. But if you don't value that, you might not spend money on that at all. If instead, for instance, you're motivated by approval, by being accepted by people, you might constantly treat others with gifts or out to restaurants or invite them to your home and host them with lavish dinner parties. You will throw your money around to be accepted, to get into the circles you want to get into because approval and acceptance matters. Or you might just use your money to get into higher and higher levels of power because money gains you access to power and you desire power. Whatever your primary motivator is, will spin a complex web of hopes and fears that drive you to put your money to gain the hopes and stave off the fears. We will use our money to experience the heaven that we're looking for. And in this sense, money becomes a functional savior in our life. So it's like, yeah, yeah, I trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus to get me to heaven. But the heaven I'm looking for down here, comfort, Approval. I've got money for that. Run that visa, and I'm getting heaven. What if you're not a spender? You're a saver. You're sitting here gloating because I've just been kind of downing all the spenders, right? It's your turn. If you're the kind of person who is frugal, who saves, who socks money away, why do you do it? You have that proud of your financial discipline kind of mentality. You look down on those who are lavish, who are driving the new car. You look down on those who go on the big vacations. You put your money away. You invest it wisely. You put it in the bank. You have investments. You have savings. You have your future covered. You don't, you don't buy new clothes. You're wearing the same clothes that you bought in 1988 when Chevy Chase was still popular. And we know, we can see it on you. <laughs> you haven't bought a new pair of clothes in 40 years. You wear your frugality as a, as a blanket of pride. But it's possible that you're driven by an other set of motivators that become a false savior in your life too. You think, if I just have money in the bank, then even if my health declines or I lose my job, if I have money in, in my investments, then no matter what happens, I'll be safe. I don't want to deal with that time of insecurity that I had growing up, and now I'm covered. I've got the next 30 years covered. I'm good. You may not value comfort and pleasure. You will give up on approval and acceptance, but you must have security and control. And you use money and investments to stave off that hell of uncertainty of not being in control. Now, there's other reasons to save. And there's other reasons to spend. But it should cause us to say, what is motivating me beneath this? And the thing is this. Even if you have not much, honestly, even if you have very little, 
money can still be an idol because you envy those who have more or you're judgmental of their lifestyle or you look at people who come from the same circles that you came in years ago, went to the same high school or the same college and they're doing so much better than you and you either hate yourself or you look with judgment and envy on them. Even when you don't have much, money can be just as much a Lord in our life as it is for the rich. So I think the question is not, does money have a hold on my heart, but how does it do so for me? And to what extent am I under its power? Money, as an idol, demands loyalty. Every idol demands loyalty. And it increasingly enslaves us. One friend of mine who's very successful and has been able to kind of you know, buy the house and all the other things with it, I was talking to him recently and he, and he said, one thing I've realized now that I'm X number of years into this and he's got kids and he's got the cars, and he, he's like, I can't go back. I can't go back to when I was just starting. We now spend in a way that I can't get out of. The private schools, the vacations, the expectations that the kids have, this is what we have to do. And so I have to keep earning in order to appease the things I've set up in our life. The very luxuries and joys that used to be a starting pleasure are now enslaving. Probably, our working hypothesis should be this. Money is a functional savior, and I am probably blind to its hold on my heart. Okay, everything I've just said for the past 10 minutes, I said three weeks ago. Who remembers that? Nice, good job. Literally everything I just said for the past 10 minutes. If you don't remember that, don't raise your hand. But the reason I did was because even three weeks ago when I was working through this, I thought this is incredibly important. The idolatry of money is so foundational to us in this world that it's worth hearing it again and again and again until we can unpack what motivates us, how money has a hold on us, to the extent that our wealth is enslaving. What besides God is foundational to my heart's loves and trusts? I won't go back to it again in three weeks, but I wanted us to hear it again in hopes that maybe we would start thinking more deeply about what God is calling us to. The climactic story in Luke before Jesus enters Jerusalem is Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Zacchaeus, according to Luke 19, verse 2 and 3, is a tax collector, and he is very wealthy. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. We've talked about it here before, but the job of a tax collector was to be a traitor to their people and their nation. They were to give a certain amount of money to Rome, and in order to do so, they, they extorted and stole money from all of their friends and neighbors. All that mattered was you gave the right amount back to Rome. You could take whatever you wanted on top of that and you had Roman soldiers to back you up. It was known that tax collectors could hate others, could lie to others, 
and you could do the same. It was lawful, according to rabbis, to avoid a tax collector, to lie to them, to desire their end. Zacchaeus had power and he had wealth. He had access to anyone he wanted in the higher echelons of society in his city, and he had everything he could want. And yet, according to verse 3, he is seeking to see who Jesus was. Something was missing in his life. He had everything that money could give him, but something was missing. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, and because he was short and the people wouldn't let him near, he climbs up into a tree. Jesus walks by, stops, and says, Zacchaeus. He addresses Zacchaeus. In a town that everyone avoided Zacchaeus, Jesus looks directly at Zacchaeus and calls out his name, identifying him with dignity and kindness. Zacchaeus, you matter to me. I'm stopping to talk to you. Come down, for I must stay at your house today. And in a culture where hospitality and hosting elevated you in the social circles of the community, Jesus is giving Zacchaeus a unique honor. You get to host me, the great rabbi, which will bring honor to you and to your family. He's elevating Zacchaeus before all of the people who hated him. And he's sitting down to have a meal with Zacchaeus, which had covenantal implications. Having a meal with somebody said, I accept you. We are together. You are my friend. No one, no one, no one had ever treated Zacchaeus with such generosity. And Zacchaeus' response to this grace and this love that's offered him, in verse 8 he says, See, Lord, I give half of all I have to the poor. And if I have stolen anything from anyone, I will repay it four times. Now, according to the law, according to the law of Moses, you were supposed to give 10% or thereabouts of all you had to the poor. Zacchaeus says, I will give 50% of all I have to the poor. On top of that, if you stole something or accidentally defrauded somebody, you were supposed to pay back 20%. Zacchaeus says, I will repay back 300%. If I've stolen 100, I'll repay back 400. Even though the law said if you stole 100, you had to repay 120. He goes above and beyond because he doesn't care about his money anymore so long as he has Jesus. Zacchaeus responds to grace with radical, over-the-top generosity. He drops all claims on his wealth and gives it and himself over to Christ. Okay, we've been talking about money. But it's not about money, but about who or what is your God. God cares about your heart. He cares about you, which is why, which is why he cares about your attitude towards money, possessions, and wealth. Because money can actually be a primary indicator of who is the true Lord of our life. Tim Keller wrote, faith in the gospel restructures our motivations, our self-understanding and identity, our view of the world. To the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. Zacchaeus experiences the gospel of grace in the person of Jesus Christ, and he lets go 
of all that he was holding on to before. The Gospels make this claim. Jesus did not just give a tithe of his life for us. He didn't just give 10% of his blood for you. Like, I'm gonna give you just a portion of me for your salvation. He gave all of himself for you and for me. When that sinks in, it will transform our view of everything we have. The gospel will necessarily reorient our relationship to our money. And it will compel us, like it did with Zacchaeus, to open-handed, planned and spontaneous radical generosity. So the question is this. Does money have a hold on your heart? Or rather, how does it? And to what extent? And what does God want to do with you as you respond to his gospel of grace? Instead of going to the Lord in prayer, I'm going to actually invite Patty Brown up. Patty Brown works at the Lamb Center in Fairfax. And over the past couple of weeks, rather than just going to the Lord in prayer, we've been using uh, guests to share with us insights that they have about poverty and wealth in our culture and in our world. And so I asked Patty to come and share with us about an aspect of our life in our community that many of us actually don't know a lot about. Uh, Patty works with the Lamb Center, and uh, many of you know that the Lamb Center is one of our mission partners. Every Easter, we do a collection for need items at the Lamb Center. It's a drop-in homeless shelter. But Patty, I wanted you to share with us, and I've known you for a long time, known your sons, I've worked with them, and uh, Patty has a great heart, a great heart for the poor and a great heart for the Lord, and it's compelled her forward. So I wanted you to share with us a little bit in this area. So Patty, Tell us what the Lamb Center is. What do they do? Help people who maybe have never heard of it to know what the Lamb okay. Center is. It's hard to believe. First of all, thank you, CCV. You're an amazing church. And um, pat yourselves on the back. You're just supporting the poor and the Lamb Center. And we're just so grateful for the relationship. But it is hard to believe that over 100 people a day come to visit our walk-in day shelter right around um, the corner at the Fairfax Circle. These people might sleep in the woods, they might sleep in their car, they may sofa surf and sleep on somebody else's um, sofa in their low-income apartment. It's hard to believe that that happens right here. Um, the Lamb Center started in the community 27 years ago over a pawn shop. We moved to uh, near Artie's back in 2000, and um, two years ago, we opened a 10,000 square foot building that now houses a dental clinic, a nurse, a psychiatric nurse practitioner, a clothing closet, a place where we do one load of laundry per person per day, um, AA meetings, four case managers. We had the most exciting Bible studies, and we have chapel services that Johnny comes in and leads once in a while. And we just started a job program with the city of Fairfax where uh, the homeless can come on Tuesday and Thursday and earn up to 10 hours a day working for the city of Fairfax. So it's an exciting place. but. 
it's just an amazing place too. And so even in Fairfax, where we are one of the wealthiest counties, there are people who are homeless. Um, is that something that has increased? Has it stayed the same? What's the situation with homelessness in a county like Fairfax? It has increased. Um, we see over 350 unique individuals a month. And we've even had substitute teachers come. They might sleep in their cars, and they're in, during the day they can come in and use our telephone and find out where they're working, and they can take a shower, get ready to go to work, and off they go. Wow. It's hard to believe. What are some of the causes of homelessness, either kind of in a person's life or even structurally systems that create homelessness either side of that? A large part is mental illness. It might um, be very evident. It might not be. Um, also addiction. And um, some of our guests have simply made bad choices. One guest uh, took care of his mother and lost his job while he was caring for his dying mother. Mm -hmm. So um, you just never know. So the, the stories behind that are, are all unique, but there are some challenges that, that a lot of these people deal with. Um, are, are there things that are going on in our culture, in our systems and laws, or anything else that kind of helps to feed that? You said it's increasing now. Is it maybe, uh, is there anything you can see or you guys see? Well, uh, the lack of care for the, the severely mentally ill can often obtain care, but it's the marginally mentally ill. And we just, if I might share a quick story, uh, one of our guests came and um, he was a sweet man. He had some ev very evident that he had some troubles and he kept in the morning when I would arrive for work at six, he would be sleeping on the asphalt of the street. It broke my heart and we called immediately and tried to get him care, but you can't force somebody into care in our society. So Finally, we had a meeting with the um, crisis care, and they said, you know, you have a case manager. Let's get you back in the loop with that. And sadly, he went, and um, one night he was struck by a car, and he died. Up, um, he was waiting to visit his case manager, but he was sleeping on the street again. And we later found out that he was a graduate of a local high school and a graduate of Juilliard School of Music. He was a very gifted young man. Mm -hmm. How, how has your faith, your faith in Christ, moved you into this work for the homeless poor? Well, it's broken my heart with the things that break God's. The first real quick story is one of our guests came in one day and he said, Miss Patty, do you have any mayonnaise? And I looked around and couldn't find any. And he said, don't worry, I wanted to make some egg salad, but I'll go to 7-Eleven and get some mayonnaise. Well, he came back and uh, he, I said, Robbie, come on over. And he looked at me, and he had a great big smile on his face. And he said, thank you. That felt really good. And I said, what? He said, you call me by my name. I haven't heard my name in eight years. My mom and dad have both died, and I go by a street name. That broke my heart. And in our Bible studies, that we, we have two Bible studies every day. And um, I just knew that I needed more of the Lord in my life and went on to become an Anglican deacon so that I could just, I need power, I need prayer, and I need him. Yeah. And do you think um, the God that we serve calls all of us into this or in what way? How, how does God's heart motivate us um, into this care for the, the homeless maybe? Well, I, I believe we're all called mm -hmm. to, um, it might be coming to the Lamb Center to volunteer, which mm -hmm. we would love. It might be students at home getting ready for school and deciding to do a project for the homeless. 
as simple as making trail mix. In, um, we can give that out at the end of the day. We can also give school credit for that. You can call me. And, um, yeah. That's good. 45 bags for two hours of school credit. There you go. All right. Um, it can, um, we have a needs list. Everything we have at the Lamb Center is donated. So um, we always have needs online. Uh, it might be when you're cleaning out your closet and you want to donate your um, good shape athletic shoes or your blue jeans to the Lamb Center, we can take that as well. There is something everybody can do. When we were building this new building that cost $4.5 million, little children would come in with four quarters in their hand um, from a lemonade stand. And um, it's, it's a beautiful place. It is. I think it's a unique place where God has been working for years. And we're thankful for you, Patty, and for all those who work at the Lamb Center. Um, let, me, let me pray for you, for the staff, um, as well as uh, for the guests and for God's calling there before we continue on in prayer um, right after this. Let's pray. Almighty God, your son had nowhere to lay his head. We pray that you provide a place, protection and provision, for all in our community who lack adequate housing. May they not be alone in their struggles with illness, addiction, or poverty. We pray that you would strengthen the staff and volunteers of the Lamb Center for Patty and the work that she does so they may continue to love and care for the homeless here in Fairfax. And may we who are being called into this work give to the needs of others as freely as you have given to us in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Patty.